0: Welcome, everyone, to Episode 80, Gene Therapy in a Box. I'm Dr. Kiki, here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen?
1: I'm hanging in there. It's the holiday season. I don't like the holiday season, frankly.
0: (laughs) You're one of those.
1: I'm not a (laughs) hater. I'm not a scrooge. I like the moments that I share with my family, mostly my kids. That's really the only friends I have, let's be honest.
0: (laughs) It's that unconditional love. (laughs) All the other
1: stuff, all that other stuff around it. I mean, forget about the whole consumerism and all that, but it's stressful dealing with just the people in the holidays. It's really intense. So I'm kind of, I'm struggling, but I'm hoping to get through this one.
0: Yeah. I mean, before Thanksgiving, I went or went, did the Thanksgiving dinner shopping and I felt the anxiety while I was at the store. I'm like, I have to get all this stuff in there, all these people. And it was a terrifying, it's always a terrifying experience to me. I'm like, too many people. I can't deal with it. I'm going to go back home and start using the online home delivery grocery service. So I never have to leave my house. It's going to be awesome.
1: That's how they get you. <laughs> I know. And then you're banging out for hundreds of dollars more. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's
0: brilliant. But, you know, we don't charge anything. This is free science. Yay. Yay. We're just going to bring the science, and it's time for the show. So let's get into it. Make sure, everyone, you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com, where you can find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, follow us on social media. We're at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right, we have a great show today. Our guest for episode 80 is Dr. Jen Adair. Dr. Adair and her team have recently published a paper on developing a benchtop system to produce clinical-grade genetically modified hematopoietic stem cells. It's pretty exciting. But first, let's round it up. You ready?
1: I'm ready. Let's get down to business. I love the roundup and I can't wait to get down to it, but I'm going to have to wait, I guess, because it's your turn.
0: <laughs> it's my turn. And you know what? I'm going to start it out. This roundup is for the dogs, mm. it's for the do- all the dogs out there. Dogs, man's best friend, right? Research into dogs and the life of dogs the life of pets? No, just the life of dogs is really interesting to people. So there's a study out recently in the November 23rd issue of Current Biology out of Eotvos-Lorand University. And I know I'm not pronouncing that correctly at all, but it's in Budapest. And the researchers have looked at dog memory. And now this is exciting to me because this is kind of similar to the research I did in birds in grad school. So looking at whether or not dogs have episodic memory. And so you have things like implicit memory, which is you know how to do something, or you have episodic memory, which is, all of the details relating to an episode. So like if Dalen, if i asked you what you had for breakfast this morning, you go back to that moment in time and you think about it. I never
1: eat breakfast ever.
0: Okay, but you go back and you go you go what did oh i don't eat breakfast, but i ran around this morning and i was chasing i was trying to get out of the house and i lost my socks and you know, you you come up with all sorts of details. Semantic details about the particular episode in your life. And so this question is, do dogs have that kind of memory? Because we know that they're really good at learning tricks and they remember you and they get happy when you pet them and all that kind of stuff. You know, they don't like strangers or sometimes they'll remember individuals and not like particular individuals. So this study actually had these pet dogs watch humans do a trick (laughs) where basically climb on a chair or look inside a bucket or touch an umbrella. And then either right away, like a minute later, or an hour later, the dog was asked to copy that behavior. And they said, do it. <laughs> and that was the command the dogs had to, had to was, do it. The dogs had been trained to do these imitations already. So it was kind of having to remember the particular instance of what the person had done that particular amount of time earlier. So no surprise The dogs were able to obey the commands right after a minute. That was pretty easy for them. But they didn't perform as well when they had to wait an hour for the test. And so this is suggestive that these memories kind of grow hazy with time. So the idea, the basic take-home from this study, is that dogs do form memories about particular experiences all the time, even when they're not necessarily, when they don't know they have to remember them for later they're still kind of putting those memories into the brain basket and holding on to them for a bit.
1: So what you're saying, though, from what I heard, is that they remember pretty well for like a minute. I know. (laughs) (laughs) If you push them to like an hour, it's like a total loss. remind. remember that movie... Fifty-first first dates with the two-minute Bob, or you know the story yeah. of the two-minute yeah. Bob is like, hello, I'm Bob. Oh, that's yeah. what—that's essentially what dogs are, is what you're telling me, which is something I always knew, right? <laughs> These dogs.
0: I know. Well, from this study, it seems like that because different dogs were better or worse at this particular task after the hour. The question is, because the study didn't address this, is how are the dogs like a day later? What kind of memory do they have? And there's this question in memory consolidation research about basically the the working memory and fairly close to when something takes place. Your brain holds on to it fairly tightly, but there's no consolidation taking place, which is the actual putting the memory away somewhere, storing it for later. And sometimes that consolidation starts to take place a period of time after something happens. And- the memories can be hazy while the consolidation is taking place, but then become more crystallized later.
1: So you're so. bailing the dogs out. You're saying an, an hour later, it's hazy, but a day later, oh, man, it's totally fixed. These guys are...
0: I don't know.
1: I'm going to tell you the answer to that too. A day later, zero, <laughs> zero. <laughs> memory at all. They don't even <laughs> remember that they're dogs after a day.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, moving on from the memories of dogs. know. Yeah. Um, There's another study that took place looking at monkeys, rhesus monkeys, at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center field station near Lawrenceville, Georgia. Evolutionary biologist Jenny Tung of Duke University and her colleagues were looking at how social status, all on its own, changes the immune system. So how does it change the ability of an animal to be able to fight off infection? And there have been lots of studies looking at one of the main researchers who's looked at chronic stress and immune function and biology is Robert Sapolsky of Stanford University. And he writes a perspective in the issue of science that this came out in. So if you're interested in just reading the kind of general layman term explanation of the study by Robert Sapolsky, it's a great read but then the study itself is published in Science, they took these rhesus monkeys and they introduced them one at a time into holding areas. And then they maintained these groups for a year. And the researchers noted behaviors on their social interactions and kind of how the group functioned. And they also took blood samples to be able to look at changes in cellular and gene activity. So they weren't just looking at cortisol levels, the stress hormone levels they are actually looking at how the genes are being activated in the different monkeys in the group. The interesting thing is that by introducing the monkeys one at a time to these areas, basically the first monkey in the group, the one who'd been there the longest was the dominant monkey. And then they, after a year, they rearranged the monkeys again and they tried it over again. And the monkey's, established new orders of hierarchy, and it was the same kind of way. The first monkey that was in there is kind of the dominant monkey. And so they were able to see that low-ranking monkeys had different proportions of immune system cells circulating in their blood. Gene activity within some of these cells was dialed up, was increased in the low-ranking monkeys. And altogether, the cellular and genomic activity resulted in a physiological profile that looks like chronic harmful inflammation. So, inflammation from chronic stress from being the lowest monkey in the group. And basically it was the last monkey in <laughs> was the lowest the lowest one. So, the lowest ranking monkey in the first group was not necessarily the lowest ranking monkey after the groups were all mixed up again. So, it's specifically social status, where you are, not necessarily who you are influences, in this particular case with these monkeys, the immune system. They exposed the cells from these monkeys to some bacterial toxin, and the cells responded, again, based on monkey rank. The lowest-ranking monkeys, their cells did not respond as strongly or did not respond as well to the infective agent. It's kind
1: of an interesting study. Sounds like monkey high school. (laughs)
0: Right. The interesting thing here is that, you know, the question that people have always wondered is like, is this something that you're born a low ranking monkey? You're just, that's just who you are. And so you have this low, your immune system is going to be ramped up. You're going to have higher inflammation levels. But now what we're seeing and this part where it could be applicable to humans is like, you know, we have people who are in chronic poverty and we know that their immune systems are affected by this chronic stress of poverty. It's, place of birth. It's not necessarily the place that they're in, you know, it's their, it's their social standing. And so if you take somebody out of that situation and put them in a better situation, they may do better overall in their health.
1: Is that what they did with these monkeys? They took a monkey who had the low rank, high inflammation, and then they, they reset their rank and, and it, it reversed. Is that what went on?
0: Yeah, it changed.
1: So there's hope.
0: There's, there's hope. hope for me. Nice <laughs> for you as a monkey.
1: <laughs> <laughs> just i mean the hard part is how do you change the rank? now we got to go to the policy level and take everyone who's poor and stressed and make them not poor make them the highest rank just like that we'll trust our, our president-elect to take care of that
0: <laughs> there's a new fetal genome test which is pretty awesome instead of amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling This is a test that researchers at Wayne State University School of Medicine in Detroit, which was basically testing, swabbing for cells in the cervical canal. And basically, somehow, they don't know exactly how, as early as five weeks into pregnancy, there are enough fetal cells within the cervix. They're able to test for abnormalities linked to over 6,000 genetic disorders. This was published earlier in November in Science Translational Medicine.
1: I mean, this is amazing how they keep bringing it back, right? The yeah. date, you can go earlier and earlier, right?
0: Which is fantastic. I mean, the other test is a, a blood test, which I don't know how widespread the use of just take drawing a mother's blood and how widespread that is, and then at what point in time you can do that test also. This team gathered fetal trophoblast cells also, and they were able to examine the genomes of 20 fetuses they found that they can work with as few as 125 fetal cells, which is great because if you don't need that many to be able to detect abnormalities, that is a huge win for prevention, or at least knowing what's coming.
1: I think this technology is so amazing on a societal level, you know, the whole Brave New World idea. But in this case in particular, because the other tests with the CVS or the amnio, are like invasive tests. And this is semi-invasive, I guess you would know better than I, but isn't it kind of like getting a pap smear?
0: Exactly. Like that
1: kind of lowers the barrier, not only in time, you can go earlier. So isn't now everyone going to pretty much get their kid's genome sequence at five weeks? I mean, that's going to be a total, I don't know about a brave new world, but
0: I mean, five weeks, you're like, oh, maybe I'm pregnant. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's
0: like, you barely know you're pregnant.
1: Exactly. I mean, this is so scary. It's cool. It's scary, though. It's really scary. Yeah. I mean, cool. It's not scary, scary, (laughs) but it's like the implications of this. It's a big, big shift, which is why I guess it was in Science Translational Medicine, a pretty high profile journal. For
0: clinical use, it could be amazing. And then, oh, Peter Thiel is going to be so happy because of this research. Irina Conboy of the University of California, Berkeley, and her colleagues have figured out a new way to look at how old and young blood affect health. And this is published in Nature Communications, November 22nd. They have a device, microfluidic device, that enables shuttling of blood into or transferring blood between an old mouse and a young mouse. So the mice don't have to actually be, in these experiments, stitched together. Do you remember these studies we've talked about and where they they take an old mouse and a young mouse and basically, like, stitch them together? And it's, (laughs) you are my Siamese twin, but not really.
1: Yeah, that's some twisted stuff. So now they don't have to do the, the Frankenstein? It's
0: not as Frankenstein. I mean, it's still a device that's connecting the mice. But the method is going to allow a better and more precise test of how blood influences aging so that we understand it a little bit more. We know old mice benefit somehow. There are different ways that they benefit from infusions of young blood. And these experiments with four young old pairs of mice found that, yet again, the old mice do benefit. Old muscles can recover better from injuries. Old livers Seem to be a little bit younger with young blood. But in brain health, young blood does not increase neurogenesis in the brain or in the hippocampus. So old mice still have lower numbers of new nerve cells in the brain.
1: Blood brain barrier, maybe. I don't know.
0: Maybe. Yeah. That's interesting. But that's one of the things is like, oh, if I get young blood, my brain will be young. I'll be young forever. You know, the vampire idea of uh, how this works but the results do suggest that there are components in young blood that help old individuals and there are components in old blood that harm brain cells and start the process of senescence
1: wow yeah i don't know what the implications are (laughs) all you young people out there watch out the coming old people are coming for you.
0: Not <laughs> only are you a grad student or postdoc, you're also a blood donor. <laughs>
1: yeah, rig you up. Parabiotically rig you up to my bloodstream. That's right. I write my grants.
0: That's right. Help me write.
1: <laughs> oh man. Well, those are some good stories. There's some That's great Fun stuff. Stories. Very creepy in some ways. Scary. Big implications. <laughs> it did good so on to the stem cells
0: tell me some good things
1: this is actually a big big few weeks for stem cells we had some high profile stories the first one i want to talk about is this lineage tracing story which i think is super super cool but first just like a kind of background you know we talk about clonality with cells and it's really important for stem cells and pluripotent stem cells in particular cuz like, you know, the gold standard for defining a pluripotent stem cell is that it can give rise to all three germ lineages and all the cells comprised. This has been like a high bar I guess for people to prove that cells are pluripotent. But also not only in in that field but also clinically clonality and lineage tracing is really important. One because in talking about regenerative medicine When we discuss how we want to deliver cells to patients to make new tissues and reconstitute organs, we need to understand the degree to which our input is going to contribute to those organs. The blood is a great example, and Dr. Adair probably has some unique insights into this, and she studies indeed cell lineage tracing in her system. But in the blood system in particular, the clonality and lineage tracing has been of huge importance. Because you want to show that a single stem cell can give rise to all the different hematopoietic lineages that are important in the blood, you know, the blood, red blood cells, immune cells, etc. And you want to show that they can live in the blood for a long, long time and consistently give rise to clones that reconstitute the blood. So that's a clinical bar that needs to be met in order to show that your cell dose is actually therapeutic. But perhaps most important of all, clinically speaking, clonality and lineage tracing is hugely important because of a major, major disease. The biggest killer out there, cancer. All cancers are essentially derived from single aberrant clones. Or, you know, some can be polyclonal. But essentially what happens is a single cell breaks off from the regulatory apparatus and grows up into a cancer that then overrides the healthy tissue. So lineage tracing is a big deal in biology. And the real challenge has been in the past is understanding what cells are comprised of what original progenitor. And tracking these cells, especially in vivo, this is a challenge, in an organism, because all you can really do, right, Kiki, is take a snapshot. We sacrifice a mouse Mm -hmm. and we look in the tissue. We're looking at a static image. It's hard to tell what's come before or after, what cells came from what. Yeah. So it's a big challenge in the field. And there's been a lot of technology that's been developed. You know, a lot of Cree ancestral lineage tracing, all kind of the boilerplate technologies in the field and mouse genetics and and, uh, hematopoiesis. But there's still a lot of challenges. And one of these challenges has been met by this incredible... The best thing about this story, I have to tell you, is the acronym they came up with. Researchers at Caltech, they came up with this... Method for reading the history and the quote family trees of cells, and it's called Get This Memoir. Isn't that beautiful? That's lovely.
0: Do you think they came up with the acronym first, or yeah,
1: I'm thinking they did, and then they created (laughs) an entire tool in order to meet the acronym. Yeah, I gotta believe that if the acronym were like b g f n or something like that it wouldn't have been in the high profile journal that it was right but nevertheless it's a cool and it's actually applicable the acronym stands for memory by engineered mutagenesis with optical in situ readout it can record the life history of animal cells and the relationships with other cells the communication patterns even between them and the influential events that have shaped that lineage and that's the real emphasis here To quote the uh, principal investigator, Long Kai, memoir allows cells to record their histories in their genomes and allows us to read out that information using advanced microscopy methods. Now, the technique is really hard to understand. I'm not going to lie. It escaped me a little bit, but it uses CRISPR, a combination of all these readouts, these scratch pads, they're called. And I'm, I'm not going to emphasize the tech because, frankly, I don't understand it. I don't trust myself to explain it. <laughs> All right. So go read for yourself. But, to quote another investigator, the technology promises us access to information within the cell that we've not been privy to before. Potentially, memoir can record the activity of multiple signaling pathways within single cells, providing information on how the pathways work together to influence the cell to make decisions, such as when a neural stem cell, for example differentiates to become a neuron. So this was a proof of principle study. In this study, the researchers traced the history of mouse embryonic stem cells over three generations. But in the future, they hope to follow even more generations and ultimately learn like the entire life story of animal development as told through the cellular memoir. Uh, so to speak. So it's a cool technological advance. It's one of those things that like you look at it, you're like, I don't even know what these guys are doing. But (laughs) 10 years later, there's a million papers that have used this technology. I think it's going to be one of those kind of watershed techs that change the field of genetics and disease and specifically lineage tracing.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it is the, you know, the choose your own adventure for each cell and it's right. like figuring out, you know, which path at what point and why. And if memoir can help us figure that out, that's really cool.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's what drew me to developmental biology in the first place. It's so cool to think, you know, a single cell, a zygote, ends up walking this path to form all the tissues in our body. But we have no idea what that path is. What are the influences like? Myriad influences, billions and billions of decisions.
0: Yeah, yeah. People always wonder, like, what about environmental toxins? Or we've talked about, you know, plastics in the environment or, you know, what other things are, are in our water and our food? And is there a way that this kind of technology could help us really understand how those things at what threshold levels affect cellular
1: development? Yeah, I think that's exactly the type of study that the type of researchers that are interested in those questions are racing to get a hold of this technology. Awesome. And another race, the race into the center of a stem cell. Dun, 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 dun.
0: <laughs> is this a sci fi story?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, we're getting into it. You know, do you ever see more obscure Osmosis Jones? No one saw that, but it was awesome. Chris Rock as a cartoon. But the more familiar, the um, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Wasn't mm-hmm. that a good movie? Oh, Fantastic. So they go inside the body, they're shooting around. It's pretty awesome. These guys have gone another step further. It's not enough to be inside an animal. You gotta get inside the cell, the journey to the center of a stem cell, no less, and a stem cell that's maturing into a nerve cell. That's what investigators have published in a recent issue of Cell Reports. They use a powerful X-ray microscope to snap pictures of stem cells at different stages of differentiation. And they took the snapshots from like a lot of different angles, you know? Yeah. to try and like get a 3D rendering of it. And they compile these images to get this 3D reconstruction of the cell, but not only the static image of the, the cell, a 3D image, but the cell as it changes in 3D. So this is like 4D. Whoever thought there'd be another D, but we got there. <laughs> they look specifically, you know, mechanistically speaking, at the formation of chromatin. That's the stuff that makes up our chromosomes. And they were looking at the, the formation of chromatin as a cell matured. This has been a challenge in the past because changes in the nucleus are hard to observe because the dyes that are typically used to label the nucleus with standard imaging techniques, they don't always distribute very evenly. So these new technology has like a new method, captures the chromatin more reliably with this new labeling method. And the team is uh, now harnessing the technique to see how the chromatin restructuring that goes on there is changing gene expression. So... They built this 3D rendering. They're looking inside the cell changes. Now, they want to actually look at gene expression. Pretty cool stuff. I would love to take a walk inside a cell. I don't know that I would understand what I was looking at, though. You know what I mean? It's pretty strange.
0: I don't know. Virtual reality, just stick on a pair of goggles. You just go explore. <laughs> they have
1: these Howard Hughes. There's this one Howard Hughes video. It's like a rendering of, like I think it's DNA being replicated, the lagging mm. strand. And you look at it and it's so amazingly complex and you realize how the machinery of biology is like so much more intense than what we humans can make. But I'll tell you, you look at it and you're just like, I I don't know what the heck I'm looking at. It's really kind of uh, hard to relate to the machines going on in your normal life. But maybe not so much. Yeah. Take a walk inside a cell.
0: This kind of imaging technology, though, is just so wonderful. I mean, I know there are labs that are using x rays and advanced imaging to get really high resolution, you know, 10 to the minus 15, 10 to the minus 18, and not break the cell. You know, like you were saying, when you stain a cell, very often it's that moment in time. It basically kills the cell and you're just taking a snapshot. And so if you can, Create these imaging technologies that can get multiple moments in time or that are able to actually keep a cell alive while it's being imaged to be able to see what's inside, you know, how things are connecting to each other and how they work. I mean, this is where it's at for looking at the interiors of our cells.
1: Yeah. To understand something, you have to observe it. Yeah. Life does not happen in snapshots.
0: No, isn't that true? Like in, in biology, just with animal behavior, you start out, they send you out in field work. Just go watch animals and right. take notes. What do you see? It's all right. about describing first, and then you figure out what you want to test.
1: That's science. Mm. Science that children could practice. <laughs> well, this isn't really for kids, this science. It's brains. Ah. I love brains. I know kids kind of get grossed out by brains. At least <laughs> my, kids do. although my son loves to talk about how the brain—nothing could survive without the brain. He has an image of, that the brain could like live outside the body. I, I don't have the heart to disabuse him of that.
0: Yeah, t- maybe if it's jello. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so the brains. You know, brain plasticity, it's like a huge deal, obviously. It's how we learn. It's how our brains go bad. It's how we recover. And, you know, historically, the brain, our understanding of the brain, it's continuing to evolve. I think maybe 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, people thought that once you go through adolescence, adulthood, your brain never grows. No cell proliferation in the brain at all. That Mm -hmm. was debunked. With the classic Carolincy experiments, looking at nuclear fallout or something, pretty cool way they did that. And now it's been shown by a, a recent study in Nature, advanced online by Peter Carmelite, who's all over the place, usually in blood vessels, but apparently works in the brain, too. He's shown that there's an additional site where there is new cell growth, postnatal mitosis and growth of neural progenitors in the brain. And it's actually not in where you would think. It's in the meninges, okay? So believed in the past to serve mainly as a protective function to dampen mechanical shocks, the meninges have been historically underappreciated by science as having like any kind of neurological importance. It's more like this structural barrier function, cushioning function. But the data gathered by this team has shown that this is not really the case. And neural precursors, the stem cells that give rise to neurons, are not only found inside actual brain tissue. In this study, they unexpectedly found that neural progenitor cells are found in these protective membranes, in these meninges, and these neural progenitors, that they produce new neurons after birth. And this highlights the importance of meningeal tissue and kind of underscores the potential of this tissue, the meninges and the cells derived from them in developing new therapies for brain damage. Now, I should say that these mm-hmm. cells are present in the meninges postnatally, and then they migrate to sites uh, inside the brain in adult life. So it's not to say that the meninges necessarily house neural in adulthood, Okay. but at least it shows that these cells ar- arise in this tissue, and that they there may be some kind of unexplored potential for the meninges in providing a therapeutic benefit for these patients. So it's novel and it's a big deal story in a big journal nature. Yeah. The therapeutic implications of this uh, not quite clear, but certainly developmentally speaking, this is a major change from the dogma.
0: Finding out something like this, that, you know, we don't just have new brain cells coming from the the interior of the brain, from the hippocampus related only to memory, that maybe in the protective aspects of growth and development that there's an importance here. I think in the last 10 years, we've also started to really get an appreciation for kind of, you know, the packing material of the brain the stuff that is all around the nerve cells. It used to be the nerve cells were the only important thing, but now we know that that's not true. And so it's there's this whole new level of research going on to the interactions that take place.
1: can add the meninges to the list. Okay, try to be quick here on the last study because I just can't stop talking today. There's all these great studies. Keep it up, keep it up. We'll try to go short on this one, but it's actually, I think, among the coolest So I bet you didn't know this, but there's this thing called diapause, where in like poor nutrient conditions, or I didn't know this. You probably did. I did know
0: this. So
1: (laughs) you can like it's like suspended animation, you know? Yeah. At a pre-implantation stage, mammals across the mammalian kingdom, a lot of species employ this device where like in a kind of poor conditions, they'll freeze or stop development. It's called diapause. And then when those conditions get better again they'll go on with it and the embryo will implant now this is really relevant to pluripotent stem cells because i always say this and now i feel kind of like a fool the pluripotent stem cells don't exist in vivo at least the way they do in vitro where there can be successfully passage in perpetuity in vivo i've always said there's this transient window there's a blastocyst stage with a you kind of ground state cell, and then an epiblast with the kind of more conventional pluripotent stem cell. And then they don't exist anymore. They all diversify into all the germ cell lineages and the, their derivatives. And I've always said that the artifact in vitro is that you can freeze them in this state. But that's not just an in vitro artifact. In vivo, diapause is the correlate of this. And these investigators have just shown in a nature story that there's a mechanism for this diapause. They report that the inhibition of mTOR, a mechanistic target of rapamycin, a major nutrient sensor and promoter of growth, hey, no coincidence there, Mm -hmm. induces reversible pausing of mouse blastocyst development and allows their prolonged culture ex vivo. So you can take a blastocyst at day 3.5. It wants to implant in the uterus. You can take it out, and by using partial inhibition of mTOR, you can just keep that blastocyst in suspended animation in perpetuity, and then put it back in vivo and reduce the inhibition, and it'll go on with development. Is that nuts or what, Kiki?
0: That's awesome.
1: I can't believe this. It can be also be induced in ES cells. They show that they can pause, they call it these ES cells, and using mTOR, it's the same kind of mechanism. And I think really this has a lot of implications for understanding how pluripotent stem cells even exist in our in vitro system, perhaps it's by exploiting this kind of diapause-related mechanism. And the authors state that the implications of these findings are also related to fields of assisted reproduction. Just think, if you have like a clock and the patient is not synchronized to receive blastocyst embryo that you have prepared, maybe you can pause the progression of that blastocyst until the patient uterine lining is ideally suited to receive it. It could improve the rates of uh, success in assisted reproduction. Also, regenerative medicine It may improve the efficiency of derivation of pluripotent stem cells also has implications to every kind of like progenitor cell. Is there a way to pause a progenitor cell, maybe a hematopoietic stem cell to pause it so it doesn't race downhill to form its derivatives, so that we can increase the therapeutic efficacy of these hematopoietic stem progenitor cell therapies? Aging, metabolic disorder, cancer, kiki, this runs the gamut. That's why it's in nature. These guys are killing it. Crushing it, putting it on pause. And that's it for me.
0: Well, I hope nobody puts this show on pause right now because we still have a lot more to come. That was, I love that story. That's good. That's some good science. Wow. Remember that all the links to these papers are going to be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course, they can be emailed directly to you by signing up for the newsletter. All right. Let's get into the interview segment of the show. We love this part. The interview portion of the show is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies wants you to know about their awesome new wall chart, Directed Differentiation of Pluripotent Stem Cells. This poster was created by Kevin Egan and colleagues at Harvard University. It's an easy-to-follow overview of different cell types derived from pluripotent stem cells, divided into germ cells, endoderm, mesoderm, and ectoderm for quick reference. Pretty colors nicely drawn. It's a great wall chart that you can explore online at stemcell.com slash go direct, G-O-D-I-R-E-C-T. You can also get a free copy if you go there to www.stemcell.com slash go direct. Get a free copy, hang it on your wall, share it with your lab. You know, this is the kind of thing that can help everybody, help everybody out, make knowing these derived cell types, understanding their pathways a little bit easier for everyone. Okay, so our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Adair, assistant member of the clinical research division at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and assistant professor of medical oncology at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Jen's group investigates retrovirus-based gene transfer into hematopoietic stem cells as a viable treatment for genetic, malignant, and infectious diseases. Jen joins us today to talk about her work and latest paper. Dr. Adair, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the show. So just to get started, can you introduce yourself and the work that your lab does?
2: Sure. Sure. My name is Jenna Dare. As you mentioned, I'm at the Fred Hutch in Seattle, uh, which is where my primary research laboratory is. I'm also partially based at the University of Washington, and um, my laboratory is really a gene therapy translational laboratory. We have focused on hematopoietic stem cell gene transfer for the last eight years, but uh, we're also interested in other blood cell gene transfer, including T cell gene transfer. And we really are about translating currently retrovirus-mediated gene transfer into phase one clinical trials for a variety of different diseases, including cancer, genetic, and infectious diseases. And we're also interested in being able to translate next-generation therapies like gene editing into the same types of cells. And we perform a number of functions in that capacity in terms of developing clinical scale protocols, Using different preclinical models in small and large animals, depending on the disease we're, we're trying to develop a translated protocol for. And we also perform safety analyses in terms of tracking gene modified cells in vivo. And this has a, an added benefit in that we get to learn about hematopoietic stem cell biology after transplant.
1: That's a, a lot of action you got there going on in the <laughs> So to me, I always think about in terms of genetic disease, you know, the 80s, I guess, when people went crazy about genetic engineering, gene therapy, and then it kind of went away. We all know that story. And now it's come back hard. And there's the kind of correction type gene therapy where you're adding a gene that's not there. And then there's like the gene therapy where you have a dysfunctional gene where you're trying to correct it. You know, with like, well, I guess the CRISPR or Cas or the tailing, whatever technology you want, have an emphasis on on one of those or the other, because I know your paper was really lentiviral-mediated gene therapy. Is that your focus? Are you go all over the map with the CRISPR and all these novel gene engineering technologies?
2: So I like to refer to myself as the translational piece of the equation. So I let lots of other labs work on the basic new molecular technologies in terms of how to get things in, and then once they've got something working we're really the group that kind of takes that to the scale it needs to be to get it into patients for early phase clinical trials. There are actually, I think, you know, sort of three flavors of gene therapy in the broader sense. The first is, you know, gene addition, which is basically what retroviral mediated gene therapy is doing. So it's adding something to the genome. And that could be a working version of a dysfunctional gene or a mutated version of an existing gene or a gene that perhaps the genome has never seen before. And then there's, you know, gene editing is really focusing on two kinds of things. One would be disruption of a gene, so essentially creating a mutation that prevents functional expression of a particular genetic component. And then possibly in situ correction, of a defect within a gene. If there's, let's say, a disease where there's very common mutation type that is the majority of the etiology of that particular disease, most genetic diseases don't really fall in that category. So another option would be the disruption piece followed by insertion of a functional copy of a gene. And those technologies, while they're being developed, and I I think there was, you know, a great Paper in Nature by Matt Portes, this group at Stanford a couple of weeks ago for sickle cell anemia gene editing, where they're just starting to get at what are really going to be feasible levels of gene editing in a specific cell type. And then once that's ready to go into the clinic or into patients, working on the scale at which that needs to be done is something that my group would participate in.
0: And so I'm curious about the lentiviral or retroviral aspect, where you're actually using a virus to insert a copy of a gene or to go in and and cut the the DNA apart. Where are we clinically on the use of viruses for human therapies?
2: So there's actually an approved AAV-based gene therapy in Europe. And then in terms of the retroviruses, there have been hundreds of patients treated around the world in early stage clinical trials, and a couple of those therapies are getting close to, I think, regulatory approval for specific diseases. But I think that, as Daylin mentioned, you know, there was sort of this wax and wane in the gene therapy field. You know, back in the early 2000s, when there were some what we call adverse events related to gene transfer in patients treated with X-linked severe combined immunodeficiency. So I think that what happened was the next generation of retrovirus vectors, namely the lentiviral vectors, the ones that we used in, in our particular paper, came about. And now many, many patients have been treated with stem cell hematopoietic stem cell gene therapy using those vectors without adverse events. And so I think that people are a little more comfortable with those moving much closer to the clinic. Awesome.
0: And so with your recent paper in Nature Communications, let's talk a bit about like what you did. And Your work was using lentiviruses and mouse model, but you created something totally new that is potentially going to help a lot of people. Can you explain what you worked on?
2: Sure. So I'll start with a little bit of background about how this came about, you know, and 2008, I came to Seattle to translate a a gene therapy trial for patients with a, a brain tumor. And then that quickly evolved into six trials that we have ongoing here in Seattle, two of which are to treat patients who have HIV and lymphoma as a result of their HIV infection. And when we started looking at all of these protocols we're translating, obviously, requires a large, what we call GMP for good manufacturing practices infrastructure. So clean rooms, Tyvek suits, lots of specialized training, you know, take your, your basic laboratory protocol that you could maybe summarize in about a page and a half. And that translates to about, you know, anywhere between 20 and 50 pages of documentation to perform the same number of steps when you're manufacturing those cells to go back into a patient. And so we were looking at this complex setup and the type of staff, the type of training that went into it, the institutional infrastructure that was required. And it hit me one day I was at an HIV conference, and uh, one of the speakers was asked the question let's say, you know, gene transfer, gene editing works. How do you plan to scale that up to treat the millions of HIV positive individuals worldwide? And the speaker's response was, First, we have to show that it'll work, and then we'll figure out how to get it there. And this really struck me. I would just been at a a presentation on precision medicine, which was the NIH's focus, in the last, you know, five to ten years. And I looked up the NIH definition for this, and it says that, you know, precision medicine is actually taking into account not just a person's genetic makeup, but also their lifestyle and their environment, And it really struck me that if we aren't looking at how these therapies impact, let's say, sub-Saharan Africans who are HIV positive, we don't really have any kind of picture of what it's going to take to really translate these therapies on a global scale. We can't just wait until we have something working in the U.S. that we can then send out. We need to provide a means to be able to evaluate these therapies in all of these different populations simultaneously. And so that was really the impetus for the thought process that I had in scaling down at least retrovirus-mediated gene transfer. And again, my expertise is in hematopoietic stem cells, so that's obviously the target system, model system that we chose. So we'd been working for a number of years trying to jerry-rig, for lack of a better word, (laughs) different pieces of large equipment and tubing sets. Everything has to be sterile. In an ideal world, you use what's called a closed system, meaning that you know, the cells come from the clinic in a bag and they never see ambient air in the laboratory room or the clean room. So it was trying to establish that. And then simultaneously with this, we were in the process of translating a stem cell gene therapy protocol for patients with a rare genetic disease called Fanconi's anemia. And it's one of the diseases that's considered, I think, a holy grail in the gene therapy field. It was one of the first candidate diseases for gene therapy. And 20 plus years and three phase one clinical trials later, no one's been able to successfully treat this disorder. It's a single gene defect, but can be any one of 19 genes. And the patients Mm -hmm. really have a true stem cell defect. They have fewer blood stem cells. The hallmark characteristic is early bone marrow failure. And their cells just don't behave the same way that, let's say, yours or my Hematopoietic stem cells would behave. So, we had to be really out of the box and thinking about how to translate that particular protocol. And we had learned that, you know, we should be trying to collect bone marrow rather than the more standard process, which is to give a patient a growth factor injection, which moves the stem cells out of the bone marrow and into circulation. And so, when you start with bone marrow, the process of getting the stem cells that you need and getting the, the viruses into them is different. You have to get rid of red blood cells. There's a couple of standard methods we would use for that. They aren't amenable to Fanconi anemia patient cells, so we had to develop a different method, which is based on head of starch sedimentation, to perform that part of the procedure. And as we were piling on all of these new elements for this disease, Fanconi anemia, it was becoming more and more obvious that we were really not technically equipped to actually manage this in the time frame that you need for a patient.
0: What kind of a timeframe do you need? Is this a matter of day or two, hours, weeks?
2: So most uh, stem cell gene transfer protocols using lentiviruses max out at about four days. The the average, I would say, is about two and a half. We, Specifically for Fanconi anemia, it needs to be less than 36 hours because the cells are very fragile once they come out of the patient. And it was also compounded by the fact that the first patient who enrolled on that particular trial was an adult, and the amount of bone marrow you harvest is based on the size of the patient. And so we had been working in sort of pediatric numbers up to that point as hypotheticals. And then what you know walked in the door is actually over a planned collection of over a liter of bone marrow. Yeah. And there's just a lot of logistics, you know, how many centrifuge tubes do you need once you dilute this? And how many centrifuges do you have? And how long does it need to spin for? And, you know, we came up with this math that we were going to require basically almost 20 hours of just centrifugation. And that's before we even get to the stem cell selection part and gene transfer. And so it wasn't going to fit the 36 hour window. And it was just serendipitously at the time that representative from Miltenyi Biotech was here at Fred Hutch demoing a new piece of technology, which was the Clinimax Prodigy device. And that device was really released as a second generation of technology to isolate stem cells or T-cells or other cells that have a, a cell surface marker that can differentiate them from whatever milieu they're in. It was designed to automate kind of the upfront steps in that process specifically for stem cell enrichment. And so we, we had a quick discussion about what sort of programming was involved, what the machine was capable of doing, how big it was. And then we literally threw together an experiment in about 24 hours with some peripheral blood that was uh, left over from a donation to see if we could actually perform our head of starch sedimentation procedure to get rid of red blood cells and if we could do it with a liter volume to start. And we basically got through a very ad-lib, off-the-cuff program process in about two runs during the week that the device was here. And we were able to then convince our institution to purchase one of these so that we could play around with it some more. And over the course of about a month and a half, we developed a, a functional protocol that was mostly automated for that piece for Fanconi anemia patients. And we submitted this to the FDA and were able to get approval. And that, for us, was sort of the first, you know, win in terms of thinking about this technology for that purpose. Once we knew that it was pliable in that way and we had a device here, uh, as soon as we got that first patient treated on the Fanconi trial, I had a a conversation basically with my lab and and with the representative from Miltenian. I said, I want to reconfigure this device to do an entire manufacturing process. And so... With all of their support, we started on that uh, adventure, which actually probably was the shortest time span. I think from start to finish, the data in that paper was generated in the course of about a year and a half, which was great. It involved a lot of uncomfortable (laughs) moments in mechanical and electrical engineering and exploding tubing sets that contain human bone marrow.
0: Uh, like a
2: horror show, (laughs) but it was fun. You know, there was late nights trying to figure out why we couldn't get the right CO2 concentration in the chamber where we were trying to grow cells and things like that but essentially the goal was to create what I like to call the portable gene therapy lab so for a fraction of the cost you have this system which is very simple to use it's based on the same type of technology that nurses use to collect blood from patients using apheresis so skilled you know nurses can understand this interface And you can, you know, essentially create what we call kit components. So your media, your reagents to separate the cells that you want, the viral vector that you want to essentially add to the cells or any other component that you'd want to add to cells if that were, you know, say a a small interfering RNA or, you know, plasmids for transfection or, or anything like that. We have built in. So that essentially you put those things in a bag in a biosafety cabinet, and you attach them to the device, and then you can run a program in a we call it a choose your own adventure module, so you get to control when things get added, how much gets added, how long it stays you know exposed to the cells, how long you want to culture cells for, or what you want to culture the cells in. so in theory, you know we can now put together one of these portable gene therapy labs and institutions that don't have the infrastructure to do it at clinical scale or to the same degree that, you know, require all these different pieces of equipment in a clean room can now do it essentially in a smaller footprint. And then my ultimate goal would be that this portable gene therapy lab can obviously be in clinics, you know, in lots of different geographic locations.
1: So, just to jump in, to take a step back here, the challenge here is to expand the stem and progenitor cells or it's just to keep them kind of in like suspended animation while you integrate the gene editing or adding a lentivirus. What, what is the input output? You put in patient sample. What do you get out at the back end?
2: So, to answer the first part of your question, you certainly could expand the stem cells the The process that we're using is a short process. so we are encouraging them to proliferate and to divide while we're performing the gene transfer, but over a very short period of time. So we're not trying to keep them super status quo quiescent while we re-engineer. But you know the ultimate goal here is right now, if a patient needs gene therapy, they typically have to go to a center that has the infrastructure to support this. They have cells collected in the hospital, and then those cells go to the GMP facility where they're modified by the staff. And then they would come back to the clinic at the end after they met criteria for infusion. You know, I think what we're really shooting for is that the cells never have to leave really the hospital where the patient is. So it's a bag of bone marrow or leukapheresis product on, you perform the upfront steps, stem cells are selected. You can either expand those stem cells over a longer period of time, or you can perform a gene transfer, in our case, using retroviruses. In theory, you know, you could also gene edit those cells. And then they are harvested basically all on the machine. And what comes off the machine, the output, is your gene-modified stem cell pool ready and formulated to be infused back into the patient.
1: Although they're like polyclonal and not selected for the ones that have the integrants, right? This is just the whole soup to nuts mess of cells. Some of them have the incorporated gene, some of them don't. Or is there any selection steps?
2: Yeah, so we did not incorporate a selection step if there is a means to select the cells. So let's say the transgenes that you incorporate are cell surface markers, then the technology is built and the modular program is built that you could perform a selection of those cells to get rid of non-modified cells. We didn't do that for this proof of concept because that's not what is typically done for most of the stem cell gene therapy protocols that are currently in study. We were trying to really emphasize that we have something that will work right now for most of the gene therapy protocols that are in clinical trials around the world.
0: It seems also that the ability to get this device into more clinics, into more places that don't have, like you say, the infrastructure for all of the people and the, the lab up, that it could expand clinical trials themselves. So if you've got more places with these devices, you can actually
2: expand your pool of applicants. Right. That's exactly what we were trying to accomplish.
1: Yeah. So with that in mind, when you think about, you know, the history of gene therapy and those issues, the adverse reactions, were more a function of, like, the uh, cytokine storm or something. It was the process. It wasn't like a oncogenesis, right? But isn't so- that the great fear with these gene editing and lentivirus in particular? Can you weigh in on what the risk is?
2: Sure. So... I will say for the X-linked severe combined immunodeficiency patients and then later on patients treated in another trial with Scott Aldrich syndrome, it was in fact oncogenesis. So in those two trials, it was actually about 20% of the patients treated had the gamma retroviruses, which were used for gene transfer, insert near a proto-oncogene and cause transactivation of that proto-oncogene and then compound that with the fact that you have this blood cell disorder. So by putting in a working copy of the gene, you've given a selective advantage to a certain lineage. So for X-linked skid, this is the T-cell lineage. You otherwise don't form T-cells. So now you've got a working copy of the gene that lets you form T-cells and that gene's inserted near a proto-oncogene, which is now transactivated and can drive the development of leukemia or lymphoma. It's kind of like a a two-hit component. So a couple of things with the next generation. So self-inactivating lentiviral vectors, you have a couple of advantages. So you've taken out the viral promoter activity. Now we use human promoters typically to drive expression of the therapeutic genes and the viral promoter is not active. So there's less likelihood that genes nearby are being transactivated. And you combine that with the observation that these lentiviruses prefer to integrate within genes rather than right near the transcriptional start sites, which is a difference between lentiviruses and gamma retroviruses. And you start adding on layers of safety. There are numerous groups who are also looking at insulating elements within the provirus that integrates. So these would protect, even if the human promoter used to drive, the transgene maybe had some you know, transactivational capacity, the insulator elements prevent that from leaking out into the adjacent portions of the genome. But probably, I mean, the best proof of concept here is that around the world, over 100 patients have been treated with lentivirus-mediated gene therapy using these self-inactivating lentiviruses, and we haven't seen the development of insertional mutagenesis or oncogenesis as a result of that gene transfer.
0: In the next steps to getting your device out into further use? I mean, say there's a lab out there or an institution that can manage to shake loose $150,000 or so. What's the next step? How are, are you reaching out to people to specific institutions? Or are you saying, hey, contact me or the company I worked with?
2: Kind of all of the above. So we, yeah. we have an ongoing collaboration with Milton Biotech in this capacity. And then we also have another corporate partner now, Rocket Pharmaceuticals, And then we're also reaching out to other labs. I'm running the circuit right now, presenting and and trying to get more people interested in working with us and using the device.
1: I know you're focused on the tech, but you must of course be aware of all the far ranging therapeutic implications, right? Not just with the diseases that you're, you're talking about. We're talking about, maybe you alluded to the, like the CAR T type phenomenon. So Can you talk a little bit about how you could use this particular approach to treating cancer as is, you know, the new hot thing in medical research? (laughs) And definitely
2: at Red Hutch. (laughs) Yeah, so we, we certainly built the module. So when you think about the tech, we focused on, you know, being able to select target cells, being able to add components to those cells to be able to culture those cells. And the, the Choose Your Own Adventure module that we put together allows you to do those things in, in multiple orders. So think about T-cell immunotherapy. It's first isolation of the target T-cells. Some groups select cd 3 Some groups like to select CD4 and CD8. So all of those can be selected with available reagents on the technology. And then there's an activation step. So typically that's done with beads, CD3, CD28 beads. It's just something that you're adding in to the selected T-cells, and then you need to get them back out. And you can use that using the same selection magnetic-based procedure that we currently have already built into the technology. And then it's just culturing and adding you know, different components. So obviously, you use a T-cell media instead of a stem cell supportive media. But most of the CAR T-cell work is also being done by means of lentivirus gene transfer. And so it's the same components that we added. Our group is doing a little bit of this work now. It wasn't included in the paper, but it's something we're working on going forward. And there's another group I know at the University College of London that's presented some work on the ability to manufacture T cells for carb T cell therapy in the same way. I do think you mentioned earlier some of the adverse events associated with cytokine storm. And that's something that I think in the immunotherapy world, people are dealing with right now as well. So, you know, a patient who's receiving immunotherapy has a large tumor burden. There's kind of this massive lysis that goes on when the T-cells are first infused, and that can produce, you know, a lot of cytokine storm type side effects. So, you know, I think the difference for us, the stem cell gene therapy piece, you know, it does require a little bit of conditioning, but the supportive care around that is, at least so far and what we know, not as intense as having to deal with an intensive care cytokine storm type situation. So I think you have to be mindful of not just the target population, but the potential side effects that we know about and the unknown side effects that we don't, obviously. And so these still need to be done under observational conditions in a phase one format, where really what the first thing we're looking at is safety in addition to feasibility, and then efficacy comes when you're able to treat more and more patients with these types of approaches.
1: So just a quick note on detail, because you've been through this rigmarole. What is the the horizon on safety when you're talking about cell products? You're talking about putting this into people. What does the FDA want in terms of time in like a monkey, I guess you're doing monkey? How long do they need to show no adverse events before they're comfortable with moving to phase two?
2: Well, I think, you know, it can be different. So we're still relatively in the infancy of gene therapy. Just in my own experience, you know, when I came to Seattle in 2008, there were two trials that we were trying to launch simultaneously. There was the brain tumor trial and actually the trial for Fanconi anemia. And we submitted both of those FDA applications and the brain tumor trial, we got approved in six months. The Fanconi anemia trial, it took five years. To get started. So, you know, there it depends on the patient population, whether it's pediatric or adult or both. Depends on you know what we know about the stem cell type and what sort of evidence we've accumulated in terms of the, the gene transfer. I think, you know, after the insertional mutagenesis events in x linked SCID, there was certainly a need to demonstrate polyclonality. So in all of those patients, we could see the event basically evolving as a single gene-modified cell clone that started to overtake hematopoiesis. It started to contribute a very large percentage of the T cells, for example. And so it was first kind of understanding, okay, we're going to track clones now, but what do we call dangerous versus not dangerous? Because we don't really know how much does an individual con- clone contribute in over time or in a certain you know, wave of reconstitution after transplant in a healthy context, let alone in these disease contexts that we're treating. So as we accumulate more and more data, we're starting to, you know, see the trends that are going to lead us to better understand what the safety cutoff is going to be. And it's not, I don't think necessarily a one size fits all parameter. That's how it started, but we've certainly seen both in monkeys and patients. Now, Clones grow out, but they contribute to more than one lineage, but they'll contribute a pretty significant proportion of blood cells, and they'll do that for a very long time without evolving into a cancer. And so we're just starting to wrap our brains around what hematopoiesis can look like in terms of its breadth and scope of clonal contribution.
1: Wow, I get it. So it's not just a matter of looking for the oncogenesis. You track the population, you see how these cells behave in the body. I didn't recognize that. That's a really Good point.
0: But this is a the process and then also the tool that you've developed to allow it to move forward. I mean, it, it just seems as though it's going to rapidly speed the progress of your understanding.
2: I hope so. I mean, the other part of this is not just treating lots of patients so we can appreciate what the differences between different populations will be. You know, the whole time we were blowing things up, I was <laughs> thinking to myself, can you imagine how many problems we could solve if 100 labs could work on the same thing at the same time. Yep. And that, you know, I have sort of this maybe grand vision that, you know, every grad student in the country could at least get their hands on one of these at their own institution. The possibilities are really endless.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time today. It's just been wonderful hearing about your work.
2: Thank you again for having me.
1: All right. That was really great. I love talking to Janet there. I don't know if the people at home are going to get the interview that I conducted after the interview. I hope they can. It was maybe a little bit off piste, but she's really got so much to say, and I couldn't stop talking to her. She's really fascinating.
0: she is fascinating. I mean she's working on so many different things, uh, but thoughtfully and in a way that could really make a difference to this research. I mean, it just it's awesome. I like it. I like it. She was great to talk to. And hopefully, I mean, who knows? Maybe we'll get her on the show again.
1: When she gets all that money. Right. After she gets her riches. <laughs> the riches. I don't know that we're going to be able to pull her into the fold again. So this is it, guys. Jenna Dare. You saw it here first.
0: <laughs> all right. At this point, let's close the show. It's time for the good old SCP Rant. The rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. Dalen, what are we ranting about today?
1: All right. So, you know, it's the holiday season, of course, and I just recently got through Thanksgiving. I'm sorry to put it that way, but I like through squeezed through it (laughs) barely. And then, you know, it's the next day and I've always been all right with Black Friday because it suits my mood it's a grim you know i'm all stuffed with the food and i gotta think now about the rest of my life so it's like suitable and the consumerism you know i can deal with that but it's getting out of hand now because every single day of the week has been branded we talked about this i can't i know that there's the cyber monday which is out of hand and just a, a play for trying to spend some more money but then they came up with, this, with the what? The Giving Tuesday?
0: Giving Tuesday.
1: I mean, good idea. But enough already. And there's more, right? Are there more, Kiki?
0: There are. There's Small Business Saturday. Ugh. You know, and then there's the Forever We Love Black Friday, you know, because, of course, after you've spent a day eating and sitting around, you want to go out and go shopping on <laughs> yeah, Friday. Right? Oh, I got exactly. a day off of work. I'm going to go to the stores and battle the crowds. save some money. That's what bothers me so much is, you know, Cyber Monday. I'm trying to actually get my work done. And then I have to, you know, I have my child after school. I have to do housework. I've got all these things. And I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to put aside time out of my day to sit down and get all these deals, you know? And then I feel guilty that I didn't do it because I'm not going to save money on Christmas presents. And now I'm just, blah.
1: (laughs) <laughs> well let me tell you i'm gonna bail you out here Kiki. you don't you don't have to do any of this stuff all right this is a little known fact but you don't have to do anything you oh. can just be just you know look out for yourself and in fact i'm gonna get in on it we're gonna brand wednesday all right wednesday's okay. open all right we're branding it we, we're gonna take some i'm soliciting some uh, ideas from our listening ship if that's what it's called I want us to come up with a good name for Wednesday, all right? In the holiday season, that's going to bring some awareness to stem cells, maybe, Kiki, or, mm-hmm. or something, science. Yeah. Come on, let's do it, guys. This yeah, is a we... positive rent. I started Wednesday, angry. Wednesday,
0: Thursday. I'm pissed
1: off. Yeah. Wednesday or Thursday are open, huh? Right. right well, <laughs> Thursday is Thanksgiving. Nobody's thinking that's about science. That's
0: though. right. Yeah. Well,
1: let's do Wednesday. Listeners, come up with something. Comes something that's a little bit, it's a little bit of goodness. It's a little bit of consumerism and all nerdy science. Okay?
0: All nerdy science. I like it. I like it. I hope we get some responses on this. If you want to respond, you can respond to at Stem Cell on Twitter, or you can email stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. We're also open to your rant ideas. If you have any ideas, things that upset you, let us know. I'm sure we can rant about them. Yeah. This does it. Yeah, we can. <laughs> I'm getting better at ranting, don't you think?
1: <laughs> you are. I could see. You're like, there's a little bit of flush in your neck. I can see you're getting, <laughs> getting you're a little angry. I'm not just I'm Little,
0: little Miss Optimist. Everything's going to be okay all the time anymore. <laughs> I'm coming to the middle ground here. Oh. Dalen?
1: I'm working on coming to the middle ground. Soon. Good.
0: Good. Here we go. <laughs> That's what it's about. This concludes episode 80 of the Stem Cell Podcast. This was fun. 80. It's a nice round number. Wow. It was so full. Yeah, and it was full of great stuff. Great interview, great science this week, some big stories. Dogs. Dogs. That's right. (laughs) Take your dogs for a walk, everyone. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. We're gonna have lots more of this great stuff. Science. I'm looking forward to next time, Dalen.
1: Me too Kiki, can't wait.